everybody. Welcome to another episode of Ruby Rogues. I'm David Kamira, and today on our panel, we have Valentino Stoll. You know. And that's it. So Valentino and I were talking before the show, and we just were kind of discussing the idea of Rails environments. And when we talk about Rails environments, we, we don't specifically mean your development environment and your actual production infrastructure. But today, we want to talk about the actual Rails environment. So when you create a new and fresh Rails application, you are given the development environment, the test environment, and the production environment. And the question is, do you keep it like that? Or do you stray away from what's been given to you? And do you start creating other Rails environments like the staging environment or a QA environment that kind of lives within your source code? So that's a question that we pose. And we want to kind of dive into that topic to see what Valentino does and what I do and some of our lessons learned or some of the regrets and really just what the best path forward is. Don't you wish that Rails came with a component library that would plug in the widgets, charts, graphs, and other things you need to build a solid user interface? And wouldn't it be even better if it looked great and was easy to integrate? Well, I have great news, folks. I found it. Avo provides all these things along with authentication, advanced search, menu editors, grid views, and a ton more. Plus, there's an open source version that gives a ton of stuff for free. Just go to avo.cool, that's A-V-O dot C-O-O-L, to see what they offer and give it a try. I'm so excited to have an option that works out of the box, doing more than the basic CRUD operations, and I'm thrilled that I don't have to buy an admin theme and then convert their stuff to Rails views. This is built for Rails by a Rails developer, and it's awesome. Go check it out at avo.cool. Yeah, you know, I love this topic, mostly because, you you know, once the once your Rails app starts growing or you just start testing in general, you know, you immediately have a new environment <laughs> and you start cloning things and you want to try and keep your app the same in all these environments as much as you can so that it, it remains the same when you're testing it as in production or in development, right? As, as best you can. There are some things like for performance that are left out in production, right? That mm-hmm. in development, you, you know, don't cache as often just so that you have, you know, more reactive changes as you change things, right? But it's definitely like really hard to keep everything in sync. <laughs> and and I'm, yeah. it may be hard to get right. And I would love to kind of hear, maybe we should break down kind of where these environments end up, you know, like what, what kind of environments do you have as an example? Yeah. So back in the day, one thing I would do was rely heavily on the encrypted credentials in Rails or Rails secrets or whatever came before that. And essentially, that means that if I had a staging environment, I would also create a like a staging environment infrastructure. I would also create a staging environment within the Rails application code. So I would copy out like the production code folder or whatever the environments, production.rb, I would copy that out to a staging, rename it, and then do that kind of stuff and then create a credentials or secrets file for the staging. And that's essentially how I managed it. And I tried to keep it as production-like as possible with the exception of anything that would potentially send out real emails or do real transactions, anything like that. 
it would always hit a test environment, a non-production thing. So emails would not get sent out unless if they were on a whitelist and that kind of stuff. So that's the way I used to do it. But the more and more I think about it and just wanting to have a cleaner code base, I actually don't do that kind of stuff anymore. I keep the default development environment test environment and production environment. And instead, I rely more on the environment variables that you can pass into whatever kind of cloud management system. And then that will get fed into the Rails application. So if I have a staging environment, I would have the like a staging environment infrastructure, I would have it run as production mode. But the API keys that I'm sending through for the mail client, the SMTP or whatever, would not be the same production ones. Same way for any kind of Stripe key, it would be more the test environment ones, not the production ones. Yeah, you know, talking through all these things, I mean, because I have a very similar setup. I have used a very, very similar setup before with other companies too. But why even do this, right? Like, (laughs) why have multiple environments at all? Maybe, Maybe we should break it down for some people that maybe just, you know, they have their test environment, their dev environment production, why have anything more than that? Like when you when you have a staging environment, what do you what do you use it for as an example? So the staging environment for me, I don't have one really for uh, personal projects. So any non-revenue generating projects, I really only have my local host test my local host development environment. I have a test environment which runs in CI CD, and then I have production. And I don't have any kind of staging infrastructure because for a non-revenue generating product, there's no need to have that extra overhead, especially if there's essentially no money at stake. But if it is a revenue generating, then I will have a staging infrastructure set up, but still just use the production environment within the Rails application code, just have different environment variables that synchronize uh, or sync to different servers. Yeah, you know, you brought up email as an example, which is kind of a great example of when, you know, why we have these environments that are separated out anyway, right? Like, we don't want to send emails from our production servers or however we configure it in development or test, or maybe we just have different keys that we use, right, for those environments where we don't want to tie into what we actually use, right, live. So I'm curious. What else uh, do you configure as part of the, that separation? And what, what do you use to best manage that? As far as how do I manage the keys or the different environments? Like, how do you, how do you manage keeping track of it all, right? Like, so this is a problem that I have is that you add, a, if you, anytime you introduce a new key into this, these environments, you have to replicate it in all your environments mm-hmm. <laughs> or, you, or you're bound to have issues like whether or not it, it introduces the issues right away, like just having missing keys in, in your environments whether in one environment, but not another is just so easy to cause a problem. So how, what do, do you use anything, a utility or something like that to keep track of them? Or is it kind of just like a design pattern or, or, you know, developer pattern that you say, Hey, everybody is just, if you add it to one environment in code review, somebody will catch, oh, it should be in all of them. Yeah, that's where things kind of get a bit tough because 
in some situations, take Elastic Beanstalk, for example. If you want to add new environment variables to each environment, then it has to essentially go through a deploy phase. And that deploy phase hopefully would not take down the production environment, but there's always that risk. And so you can't do it at the same time that you are updating your local development environment, the staging environment, and whatever else infrastructure that you have. So it needs to be planned out. And that planning needs to be kind of tracked somehow. So when you do go to do a deployment, you're not losing sight or remembering to do that. So that does have some of its own complications there. And I think uh, team communication is really your best friend there. So I want to move to the database. (laughs) This is probably my biggest gripe with separating out environments or keeping separate environments is there are so many different strategies out there, right, on replicating data. And when's the best time to do it? How much should you do it? Should Should you be sampling from production, as an example? What strategies you know, do you practice as far as keeping a realistic snapshot of what data in the database, you know, database seeds, if we want to call it that? What are your strategies for tackling that? Generally speaking, I never copy production data over into any other environment. There's just, there's a lot of risk involved, especially if if in my local environment or a staging environment, if things were not set up properly, then I could be emailing out people to real email addresses that was unintended. And then that causes a lot of confusion and some people kind of feel a bit upset about that. So I never do that. But what I will do is try to, especially if there is some kind of issue reported, to try to first verify that that issue is happening in production Then I try to replicate it in the staging environment. If I'm able to replicate it there, then I know that this is not an environment-specific issue, but maybe it's a code issue or some kind of infrastructure decision issue or something else going on. If for whatever reason it is a data integrity issue that is so obscure, then and the only option is to pull production data into a staging environment. Number one, you want to make sure that you have limited access to that data so you don't have someone else coming in accessing it and they know that this is live production data. But you also want to sanitize it. So all the email addresses, you need to have some kind of script that either when you're downloading it, that it protects your customer's data by removing any kind of email address or other personal identifiable information. And then you can load it in with a little bit more lax restrictions. Yeah, that makes sense. I know at, at Doximity, we have this like practice of, you know, any new feature has to have like a, a database sample that people, developers can generate. And I mean, this this kind of like brings me to a, another question I have in like user experience and actually checking that something works uh, is often like, People enter crazy things in forms, <laughs> as an example, right? And even if you're just capturing somebody's name, you know, like they can enter like crazy characters sometimes or just not enter it as you might expect, right? If you have a full name, some people will do their last name first and add commas. And it's so hard to capture that 
aspect of it in a test or even in a staging environment, right, where you're trying to see what something might look like. I just find that such a hard problem to solve. <laughs> we use things like Faker, right, to help generate data the best we can. That would be a name or a company or something like this that we know that it can be these kinds of variations, right? Which helps a lot, but there's still like there's still a lot where the bugs introduce themselves later just because you know you couldn't capture the data that how it's actually being entered. Yeah, and those are some strange edge cases. I would I would kind of put those in the edge case boat. Whether a user has a surname that is over a hundred characters or something crazy like that where, you know, I'm not going to specifically go out and test for those kind of things in my local environment and stuff. I might use Faker and it could just by chance happen to pick up on something like that. And I think, you know, that's fine. Then you can kind of address those issues as you see them. But in those kind of situations, it's really kind of difficult to know how much is too much testing or when are you not testing enough. I think we need to have some kind of good indication and understanding that not everyone uses just A to Z in their name. And so you shouldn't have any kind of regex thing that will actively invalidate those kind of strings. You know, I think that's going a bit too far because, you know, I've gotten several umlauts or other special characters and names that aren't your standard 26. So I'm curious what kind of tools you use to to replicate the data, right? Like, let's say you have your database seeds where you generate XYZ feature and you want to generate sample data for these features that you want to test on a QA environment, let's say. You know, what are you using these days to do stuff like that? Are you using Faker with some scripts? You know, what, what's your strategy for that? So I have a relative interesting approach to it. I've created a rate task in the past, and it's not too hard to do. You just kind of tap on to the existing Rails DB seed, but then I can also add another colon after the seed and then put in a model name. And that model name would then specifically refer to in the DB folder in the I create a seeds folder to that model, and then it'll generate some specific data around that model using the faker gem and that kind of stuff. So that way, if I want to, if I have a company model and a company has many users, and then a user can have many posts and a post can have many comments, if I just need to test out a bunch of different comments, then I can do a Rails DBC comment and that'll generate 10 new comments or something like that. So it's an interesting approach that can have some use cases. But one thing I will do is have a overall seeds file, which will invoke each one of these. So when I have a new application or a new setup, I can quickly see the database with all the relevant information and features, because as your application grows, that kind of thing can take a significant amount of time to set up. And we're not really getting paid to do data entry here. We need to do the development. And every now and then, I think there is merit to going through and setting up a new company, new user, and all this other kind of stuff from scratch, because you will potentially uncover some defects that were unexpected or weren't there before. 
But as a general rule of thumb, those kind of things usually aren't changing too often. So I don't test that too often outside of what my automated tests already do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, going back to the environment variables in the Rails environment, I just remembered of one practice that I don't necessarily like, but it does give early warnings, which is kind of neat, where if you have an application that has a lot of environment variables, what I ended up doing was there was a chance where a DevOps person or someone could go in and clear out one of these without us realizing. And because of that, the application, if it were to reprovision or something, it wouldn't load up correctly. And so tracing that back was a bit difficult. So what I ended up doing was adding, creating a plain old Ruby object. And that plain old Ruby object, I just invoked in the boot.rb before the Rails application loaded. So on a new provisioned virtual machine or Docker container, whatever, you should have access to all the environment variables that had been loaded in from the infrastructure at that point. And it would go through and check each of these environment variables that they existed. If one did not exist, or if it wasn't within a certain value or parameter that was expected, then it would actually prevent the application from booting, posting in the standard out or the the log what environment variable was missing or a potentially incorrect value, and it stopped it from booting. So that's another interesting approach to what your question was earlier on how do I manage all the different environment variables? Well, if it's in the application code and you're going to deploy to staging or production, you're up late at night, now you're deploying to production or whatever the case, and the virtual machine doesn't boot, you don't have to go figuring out why. You just have to look at the logs. You'll see, oh, we're missing this environment variable. This must have been introduced on this state or whatever. Yeah, that's an interesting approach. It rem- reminds me a lot of uh, how Heroku just like fails fast uh, if you try and push something. And if something in the initializer is you know looking for that environment variable, it doesn't exist. You just can't deploy your code, right? Mm-hmm. I'm curious. I don't want to get sidetracked too far, but <laughs> I do... It makes me think of Heroku's test deployments, if you've ever used them before, where you can attach every PR, you can create a whole new deployment for that PR and test changes on it kind of as an isolated QA environment. Have you ever played with that before? Not on Heroku's, but I have set up something similar with GitLab and their CICD before. What's what's your take on that? I mean, to me, I see it as overkill, <laughs> but... But a lot of people seem to be on board for it. Yeah, I think on personal projects, it's complete overkill because, you know, you have your staging infrastructure and stuff that you can test that out with if you want, or even just locally or use your production environment to test it out once you deploy, if it is a non-revenue generating product. So I think in most cases, it's overkill. But if you have a team so large or you have 40, 50 developers and you are only creating this staging or this testing environment on each PR, not each code commit, then that could have some value, especially if you have a QA team that needs to go in and check and verify that feature 
but they also wanted to check and verify that it didn't break anything else. So I think that it could have some merit or value in those cases. But on smaller teams and teams that really just don't have the issues that larger ones do, breakdown in communications or stepping on each other's toes or whatever the case, then a per PR stood up environment may not make a bunch of sense. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm kind of torn in this multi-environment setup, the separation of, of a QA environment and test environment. And part the reason I'm torn is I often see the setup the same, right? Like you have some CI setup that's running an, its own environment and performing tests on it. You may even have that broken up into multiple environments, depending on how large it is, right? And you want to worry about performance on specific subset of tests. But for the most part, they're doing the same setup, right? Like in your one Q or many QA environments in some cases, right? You're establishing the application, running a bunch of Cs, and then hopefully just letting it sit so that, you know, as new changes come in, you can deploy those new changes and test them out in quality, and your test is doing the same exact thing, right? They're pulling in those new changes. They're deploying a new, that environment and running the tests against it. What's your take on that? Like, wh- where do you see the need for the divide between the two? So I think in most cases, a team can get away with having their local development environment, have a staging environment, and then a production environment. I think in most cases, that's good enough. And in other cases where maybe your production environment and staging environment is so vastly different than your local environment. So let's say you're just developing a Rails application on bare metal, or maybe you've even Dockerized it to a degree, but you're just using Docker Compose locally. But when you go to deploy to production, it's using Kubernetes. It has, you know, its own completely different infrastructure, then in those cases, you may have some situations where the environments are too misaligned that you could run into some deployment issues. And you don't want to run into those issues as early as staging. You know, staging, we would usually use before a release, all the code that's going to go out, we're going to push up to there do a regression test, and then ship it out to production. But you may then want to introduce a QA environment 
where as features are getting completed, you can the each developer can deploy to this QA environment freely, which is still production-esque, but it's running off of the development Rails environment. So that way you can see any kind of errors or anything like that that gets loaded up. But then you lose the ability to see stuff like the assets recompile, if that worked or not, and that kind of stuff. So, you know, I think it really just depends on each team, their confidence and comfortability with the code that they're working on and their knowledge of the infrastructure. Because if I am working on an infrastructure like Kubernetes and I'm going to make certain kind of decisions that I would not make if I was deploying to bare metal or something. Yeah, that's interesting take. I mean, part of me is is just frustrated with testing and databases (laughs) and and transaction, basically like all these transactions that are just kind of wasted. And I'm thinking specifically about tests where a bunch of setup is is needed, right? Like if you have like some cross-service tests where you need to make sure data is on both sides of of the service boundary, in order to test that the communication can work. There's the whole, when is stubbing, too much stubbing, right? And if people are going to be testing this in a production-like environment for QA anyway, part of me sees like a missing concept here, right? Where tests are happening in two separate environments, kind of in two separate use cases, where they're, they are all sharing the setup <laughs> and, and wasting that time, right? sharing the setup. I don't know. It's a, I it's something I haven't found a solution for <laughs> that I yeah. that I hope existed. But that I don't know what else frustrates you from having multiple environments. Cuz I feel like that's a good way to kind of see what problems can be solved by having multiple environments. Yeah, I think one of the most annoying things about having too many environments, but it's also one of the things that make it really nice. And so if for whatever reason, let's say your application communicates with some kind of third party and you have tests that are actually trying to communicate out to that third party to get a response, it's not a big deal. And you are going to then do some kind of assertion. Well, if you are thinking of it like a random generated number or string, that comes back from the third-party service or that your application is generating randomly. So a UUID or something like that, and you have your test and you want to test a new order is created, you want to test the format of the string or whatever, then that kind of thing can be very difficult to test if you only have one environment. So in your Rails environments, you only have one and, you know, call it production or whatever, or development and production. The problem with that is when you actually go to run your tests, you're not going to be able to do any kind of assertion because this number was randomly generated. But what you can do is if you have a test environment, so a Rails environment test, then you can have some kind of guard clause return this string if Rails environment test. If you have some crazy situation where in your staging environment, you also have some kind of random generation or some kind of unexpected thing and or you need to test out some kind of certain feature but only on the staging environment, then you could do a staging environment as well within your application code, have the Rails environment staging 
And that could, you know, be a solution. Or you could just have a separate environment variable differently named that you are passing into each environment to kind of test off of. Yeah, I always see those environment flags as kind of a red flag <laughs> when I'm when I'm skimming through code, right? Like anything that changes the system based on what environment it is makes it almost like a new application <laughs> in in some ways, right? Yeah. But I do there is value in doing that too. Like for sure with external services, like things that need a little bit of extra configuration like Amazon or something like that. That mm-hmm. need more than just an environment variable sometimes, right? Yeah, it just all depends on the use case, like the specific situation. And if you understand what's going on and why you're putting that, you know, kind of specific Rails uh, environment flag in there. So, you know, it's something that I've done quite recently even because we need to test if a number was internally generated from our system or if it was externally generated with a different pattern from an external system. And based on that, we weren't able to really identify it internal or external via just the number itself. So we did have to put in a environment flag that returned, if it's our test environment, a certain flat string, just so we're able to test uh, properly. And so we're not leaving gaps in our test coverage. So as long as you understand the situation and why you're adding this in, and it's pretty clear why it's getting added in, then I don't have too too many issues with it. Yeah, part of me has this past experience of throwing things in initializers that change based on the environment that I've definitely mm-hmm. been bitten f- before flip-flopping like that. Especially if you accidentally have, as an example, sometimes you want like a production like environment that is pretty much a clone of production and you know you'll go you may be tempted to just have the environments be the application you know rails application be production so that you can mimic you know a lot of the same stuff and so like what do you do in that case right like let's say your staging environment you want to be pretty much have all of the same configurations as it would in production knowing what those effects might be right on your testing and everything like that but because there are some bugs where you just kind of need to know as close to the source as you can get uh, where it is a configuration related thing something's an initializer or you have a dual boot application where you're testing two versions of rails or something like this or two versions of a gem and you kind of need that like pre-boot environment level almost configuration to be there uh what, what do you use for edge for these kinds of scenarios no, honestly, I have no idea because I've never done uh, multiple Rails versions like side by side, which I know there has been some patterns with that where you can kind of more slowly upgrade or do something like that and switch between the two. But that's kind of always made me nervous. Instead, what I've done in those kind of situations where I was doing a bigger upgrade. I just did it all in one long living feature branch, merging in uh, or rebasing as needed, just as the code was changing, resolving any kind of merge conflicts at that point in time. And then just kind of continuing on down that road, then merging it back. So that way I don't have to worry about uh, feature flag swapping environments, 
Rails versions or Gem versions because that ultimately is going to be a headache. It's going to be a nightmare. Maybe not initially, but eventually it will. And you'll be scratching your head like, why is this not working? Yeah, so true. I mean, it it definitely is when you thank the the programming gods that you have a team devoted to infrastructure (laughs) to make sure a lot of those things can get resolved. I'm curious if you've done anything kind of out there with with the multiple environments. Like, is there anything like kind of crazy or maybe just unique that you've done having multiple environments? Maybe, you know, having a clone or something like that of your app that is pirate themed. (laughs) I haven't really done anything too crazy with environments, but I have had a really weird situation where if you've ever used uh, Cloudflare in their free version, you have a maximum upload of 100 megabytes. That's your max HTTP post or, or at least for files. And so that's an issue. But then also CPU power. It's no secret that CPU power on your local machine or on a machine that you can go out to the store and buy is going to be significantly faster, you know, the number of cores or just the raw power than what you're going to get on a $5 digital ocean droplet or something like that. You know, there's no comparison. So let's say if you have a video tutorial site that you need to upload videos to, but you can't upload them directly via your UI because of the 100 megabyte limitation that you're using on Cloudflare because you're a cheapskate and not paying for their pro version. So let's say you're one of those people, just like me. And let's say you also have a situation where you are doing your own transcoding because you're too cheap to pay for a proper host that is doing all of the transcoding and adaptive bitrate syncing, all of that you want to do it yourself. But doing that on a one core machine on a $5 digital ocean droplet or a, you know, T2 small EC2 instance is going to take 45 minutes or an hour just because you're having to transcode that video two, three times based on the number of adaptive bitrate videos you're generating and that kind of stuff. So what I've done, and this is where things get a little bit interesting, was create a secure tunnel to the VPC network that the production environment is in. This tunnel actually only needs access to the Redis instance to listen up to a queue and then repost new background jobs. And so I have a AMD 5900X uh, CPU that I threw into my server rack that is pretty much dedicated to doing video rendering. It's all G, uh, CPU-based rendering, so having the high core count, fast threads, was really what I needed. And this way, if I do a video that is going to be 500 megabytes large, I can't upload that through the normal channels through Cloudflare. Instead, I have to kind of go around Cloudflare or disable it for a moment and stuff to try to get the upload because that 100 megabyte limit. This way, I can get bypass all of that, upload the video to this separate server that no one has access to except for myself. And then that has a secure channel to then properly write to the database via an API and some Redis uh, magic that I'm doing. 
But then I also have Sidekick running on this AMD machine that will then listen for jobs that will then take these 500 megabyte video files. It'll do all the transcoding in literally two minutes versus the 40 minutes plus on a tiny uh, virtualized CPU instance up in the cloud. And then it'll post back to Redis and send API requests over to the actual production application, posting and uploading to active storage and all that stuff. So that was something I implemented to get out of paying $50 a month for better CPUs in the cloud. That's really clever. <laughs> and it's been working and I like it. That reminds me of the the guys that do the uh, server farms on Raspberry Pi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Make your own server server farm, right? Yep. <laughs> so, I mean, but the reality is if you do have something that is doing some heavy number crunching and you don't want to really pay the money for a cloud host, you can create a internal API that only you or your team will use and have a server on site in an office or in some trusted environment that can then be used to piggyback some heavy calculations on and then send those calculations back up to your application. So, you know, just out of some sense of security in mind, I do have a separate VPC on my local home environment that completely separates out the different kind of compute that I'm doing. So my home network's on one VPC, most of my server rack's on another, then anything that reaches out and communicates or touches any kind of production stuff is on its own VPC as well, on its own VLAN. And so that kind of thing is really possible. And you'll pay $600 for an AMD 5900X plus some RAM and a motherboard and a solid state drive, and that's all you really need. And then you can do so much with that that otherwise would have cost six, you know, maybe $400 a month in the cloud if you got those kind of services. So you're going to pay it off, you know, pretty quickly just on the cloud savings. But it's also like now you have hardware that you have to manage. It's consumer hardware, not enterprise grade, doesn't have ECC RAM and that kind of stuff. But if you're okay with that, given the scenario or the specifics that you're doing, then that may not be a big deal. So that that was my long-winded story of the craziest thing that I've done. <laughs> you got me beat. <laughs> <laughs> I will say we do have uh, Doximity. We're a network for doctors, and we have a environment that is a uh, it's all dog themed, <laughs> which is which is kind of funny. <laughs> Yeah, no, some places have done like Talk Like a Pirate Day and they've just swapped their YAML files or their I18N files for something like crazy like that. <laughs> That's always fun to see. Yeah, that reminds me of the, uh, I, I was heavy in translations for one of my projects. And, you know, they you can make any translation. It doesn't have to be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, known language. <laughs> So as long as you have a translation file, you could just feed it in. And, you know, if you have your whole site hooked up with Rails locales, international station standards, uh, you can kind of add your own standard and 
Yeah, I think somebody made a pirate theme. That's why I brought it up before. They translated everything. <laughs> uh, that was like the major, uh, you know, UI elements that would be noticed. It was all like pirate, like, oh, clicky button or something like that. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty funny. One interesting thing that I did, because I did have to go through an application and do complete IETN. And it's so easy to miss some things. And I know there are some tools that will kind of do a coverage report of what you've missed, but I haven't found those always to be foolproof in some situations. So I will actually translate to a language that has very distinctively different characters than what I'm accustomed to. So like a Japanese kanji or something like that. And then just throw those through a Google translator. I actually wrote a script that would just take in a YAML file. It would then reach out to Google Translate, do the translation, bring it back, create a new YAML file out of it. And so I translated to a completely foreign language with different characters. So I could then go through my application and visually see like, okay, yes, I've completely missed these sections of code. We're, we're not doing the translations. Oh, that's great. So, so it's just stick out to you. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty clever. Or you can do emojis. Uh, emojis. So, yeah. <laughs> emojis work too. I think that should be an official language there. Just make your entire YAML file different emojis or poop emojis. And if you say anything but a poop emoji, then you know you missed something. You missed there. something. That's funny. Yep. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. All right. Well, you want to move on to picks? Yeah, let's move on to picks. All right. You want to kick us off? Do you have any picks? Sure. I have a couple here. I was... At the uh, the Rails Home Conf recently, it was really great. I was bummed I missed it in person, but I saw a great talk from somebody over at Gusto, and they made this. There's this new organization, Ruby at Scale, and one of their things that they made was code ownership and code teams, and basically just a way to organize the organization members into teams and apply those members' ownership over specific files or paths or things like that based on, I think, GitHub and GitLab uh, support this. So it's it pretty cool to see. And they had a bunch of other related infrastructure surrounding applying uh, test failures and things like that to alerting. So that's cool. I would check that out. And the last one is I saw this tweet recently. I know there's been an article on it before, but Cloudflare has this wall of lava lamps they use mm -hmm. to generate randomness as part of their cryptographic uh, key generation. <laughs> so that was, that was kind of funny to say. Uh, we were kind of joking at work. <laughs> Who, whose idea was this? We'd love to know. And what did that pitch look like? 
<laughs> the wall of lava lamps. I love it. It makes me want to yeah. make one in my my own office here. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, I'll jump in with a couple of picks. So one pick is the Glide Gear TMP100. It is a teleprompter, but I'm also using it as a video communication device. So essentially what you do is if you have your web camera or a phone as a camera, then you're able to put that behind this angled two-way or uh, one-way glass. So you're able to have the camera sitting behind the glass. You can see directly the camera can see you perfectly fine, but then you have a screen laying down that reflects off of this mirror so that I can then see everybody in front of me. So that way I'm making direct eye contact at those I'm talking with, like on this call in Valentino, you can kind of test to have I been looking away much or has it been pretty much direct eye contact? No, yeah, direct eye contact the whole time. Yeah, so it's been pretty cool, and I like that. Uh, it was an early Father's Day present. Well, as I say Father's Day present, it's one of those things where I create a shopping cart, and then I hand my phone to my wife to then hit the purchase button. So, you know, that way it's from her, but I picked it out kind of thing. But anyways, I really like it. I've been using it for a few days now. And the other thing is, we have fly problems, the little annoying bugs. It's one of those things where... If I'm trying to work at night, there's a fly in my office. I will not get any work done until that fly is out of my office. So they have this stuff from Rescue called the reusable fly trap. And this stuff, it stinks. It smells like rotten fish. So you don't want to put it inside. But if you put it outside near your major entry doors, it actually has a fly attractant, which I guess is kind of bad because now you're attracting more flies. But essentially, you can just put it away from your door a bit and flies will just come in there, get trapped, and then they just kind of drown. So, so far, just using it for a few days, I have noticed a decreased number of flies in our house which we usually usually have like 10 flies or something flying around because my kids leave the door open all the time and they just kind of fly in. So definitely have noticed a decrease. So fly trap. And then I guess the last pick, I don't even know if it's really a pick, but I've been playing around with the continuity camera mode on iOS 16 and macOS Ventura. And it's really cool using your phone as a web camera. And it actually works really well, except for the desk view. I will say that their desk view sucks. The On the WWDC that they did, their desk view where they showed like, oh, see, I'm talking. And then look, I can just click a button. Now you can see my desk. I didn't have to adjust my camera at all. Yeah, that doesn't work for crap right now. Or at least not in my experience. Maybe I'm just putting my camera in the wrong place. But I put it just like they had it on the video and it did not give the same results. Unless if my camera was actually or my laptop was sitting so far away where I couldn't even touch the keyboard. So, yeah, that was kind of an anti-pick. A pick of an anti-pick. But, yeah, anyways, I think that's it. Well, Valentino, it was great talking to you again. And, yes, you know, I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, great talking to you too, Dave. All right, bye. All right. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.